think we've ever seen a hype man on stage before, so that was great. <laughs> if you wanted to come and do it during the sermon, get everybody excited, that'd be fine too, right? Good morning, everybody. It's my honor to bring the message to you this morning. I'm doing the wrong button up on my suit. There we go. Today's message speaks to the idea of the divided heart of the believer, the spirit speaking within us, crying out to God in faith, and the flesh that stirs up doubt within. I don't know if I could find a more relatable psalm for us to go through in our moments of doubt and despair. The author expresses the pain of feeling rejected by God, wondering why the enemies that are against them are oppressing them so easily when we have such a powerful God. In the depths of their despair, the writer desires to resist the momentary trouble and trust in the only one who can save him, Yahweh God Almighty. Before we read this scripture aloud together, let's remember that as we read the Psalms, we're actually commanded to sing the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. They are a means of teaching and training through music that God has inspired through His earthly authors so that the people can read them, sing them, and declare them together. This passage was not written about us, but it was written for us. This means that we can't identify ourselves as the author, but we can certainly declare the psalm with Him. We can declare the song with all of the believers who have sung it before us. And so with this in mind, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 43. If you are able, please stand and read together God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Please be seated. This psalm focuses on the author's despair. He's looking at the situation that he finds himself in, and he is broken by it. This psalm is actually a continuation of Psalm 42, so I'm just going to pull out a few more verses from Psalm 42 that, will, that uh, relate to what we're talking about this morning. Verse 1, 2, and 3, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And verses 5 and 11 are actually repeated in verse 5 of Psalm 43. So let's read that verse as well. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The author is struggling between faith and fear, between trust and turmoil, between strength and suffering. He is looking to God to save him, but he feels that God is far from him. You don't pant for water when you've recently drank. You don't thirst when you've recently been filled. You don't eat your tears day and night when you are in the presence of the Lord in great joy. So the author is in the thick of doubt and despair. If we look to chapter 43, verse 2, we see, Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He felt as though God was not just gone, but he had intentionally turned his back on the author. He knew that God could free him at his leisure, and yet God was allowing this suffering for some reason that the author could not see. Can't you relate to this author? Can't you remember the dark times in your life that you thought God was not there for you? This message is for those moments. This passage is for those moments. So what we're going to talk about today is how does the believer deal with despair and with doubt, with feeling like God has abandoned them in their time of need? The author goes through four actions that I think that we can repeat and replicate in our lives when we struggle with our doubt and despair. And if you remember my last message, I'm really on a roll now because I had four Ps for you then, and I have four Ps for you again today, all right? They are pray, plead, praise, and preach. Pray, plead, praise, and preach. This whole psalm is essentially a prayer to God. It's Him calling out for God's help in His time of need. But I think specifically verse 3 is one of the clearest moments, so let's take a look at that briefly. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The author is crying out to God, praying for God's guiding light and guiding truth in his life, for God's plan to be revealed. He doesn't want to be in the midst of this doubt and suffering without seeing where God is taking him. He wants to be brought back to the city where he can worship with God's people in Jerusalem, in the temple. And this is what we ought to be doing in our time of need as well. We should be praying to God, crying out for strength and guidance. Pray to the Father to show you his plan and his truth through the Holy Spirit. And how do we best hear God when we pray out to him? By reading his word. So turn to your Bible and seek out the voice of God in the word that he has given us. In the midst of your doubt and despair, cry out to the one who can help you and read his word for the answer on how he will guide you. For his faithfulness shown repeatedly. Philippians 4 verses 4 through 6 say this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In the midst of your doubt, your despair, your trial, your struggle, you should be giving thanks to God in your prayers. 
That's a difficult concept for us to understand sometimes. Why should we be thankful for the suffering that we're going through? Why should we turn to God and praise Him and thank Him for what He has planned for us to go through? If we look to Romans 5, we see that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. But we also see in Romans 8.28 that God says He is working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So rest in God's faithfulness that He has a good plan for you that includes this, te- this temporary suffering. Paul, the man who wrote Romans 8.28, was imprisoned for large, long swaths of time. He was beaten. He was kidnapped. He was, people attempted to murder him. He was stoned. And ultimately, church tradition says that he was killed for a false accusation against, lobbed against him. And that's only what was done to him by men, let alone all the natural disasters, the accidents, the illnesses that he faced. It's clear that he suffered horrifically to the point where many of us in our own strength would have just given up. But the Holy Spirit empowered him to go through this life of suffering. And look at how he reflects on the life he had lived up until that point in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God or belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh." So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends out to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What a bold proclamation from a man who faced so much trial, so much hardship, so much persecution in his life. Paul suffered continually, but the work of the Holy Spirit was shown through him. He was empowered to do these things by the grace of God. The same spirit that was in Paul is in you and I as believers today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the same spirit that empowered Paul to go through these sufferings and still rejoice in the Lord always, still give him the glory for all the things that he was going through. If you trust in Jesus and his life and resurrection, then you are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God among men, filled with the Holy Spirit so that he can produce good works in you in the same way that he produced them in Paul. So do not shrink away from trials and persecutions, but pray to God the Father 
through the, the Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and ask for His strength to be shown in your weakness, for, life to be made manif- for His life to be made manifest in you. Pray to the only one who can help you in every situation, God Almighty. That was pray and now plead. How the believer should plead when they are in despair. So we don't get any other baggage of the word tied in. The, the dictionary defines it as an emo- to make an emotional plea, appeal, an emotional appeal. When we are dealing with our dark moments of doubt and desperation, we should be making an emotional appeal to the Lord to save us in those times. Let's look at verse 1 of our passage here today. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. We don't know the specifics of his oppression. We don't know exactly what the enemies were doing to him. But it appears that he is asking for an earthly justification by the looks of his word choice. Vindicate me. In other words, justify me or prove me guiltless before these evil people. Make my case before them. And he's calling out to God to do it. We don't know if he was enslaved or imprisoned, but we know that he is turning to God to save him through whatever trial he is facing at that time. Some more examples of pleading in Scripture that we can look to. Psalm 62, verse 8, pour out your heart before him. Jeremiah pled to the Lord against the wicked who were thriving in Jeremiah 12.1. Joshua pled to the Lord that he would withhold the annihilation of Israel in Joshua 7, 6 through 9. Hezekiah pled for his own life in Isaiah 38, 18, and 19. But probably the best demonstration for us from Scripture in pleading our case before the Lord is that it is the example that Jesus gave in Gethsemane. Jesus was praying on the night that he was sold to the Jews so that they could kill him. And Jesus, knowing the pain that was coming and knowing the plan of God through that pain, still pled with God that he would let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Matthew 26, 39, it was an appeal to be released from the plan of God, the plan that he had been sent to earth from heaven for, the plan that he knew was his destiny, and yet he pled with God to remove him from it three times. It's an emotional appeal that because we see that right before this passage, Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, when we are pleading with God, we need to draw the same line that Jesus drew. He said at the end of his prayer, not as I will, but as you will. We can't demand that our God do our will which, if you were unaware, there are many churches doing today, in North America at least. We have no authority to tell God where or how or when He should deliver us, or even that He has to deliver us at all. We can come to Him with our desires and our pleas, but we should always end with the words of Christ in His plea to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. This is more than just a cute tagline you can end your prayers on, but it's something that you should earnestly seek because you should be earnestly seeking to submit your will to God's. Because as as believers, we are slaves to Christ. We are slaves to God. Romans 6, 20, verse 20, 20 through 22. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So we are slaves to God when we are freed from sin. What will do we have as slaves? Only that which aligns with our master. The will of God should be our guiding light in our life. We should be seeking through his word to determine what he wants us to do in our life and line our will up with his. We should seek to be a great example of the submission to God, the submission to Christ in all things, especially when it is most difficult. So believer, plead your case to the Father. His will will come to pass. Be in reverent submission and trust that he is a good and gracious master, giving you good and glorious gifts. He gives us trials and troubles and sufferings to shape us into the image of his son. The trouble you suffer, it is not purposeless. It is not a pointless pain. It is for your good and for God's glory. Pray, plead, and praise. We know in our heads that God is with us, that his spirit rests within us, and yet our flesh, our natural desire, our sinful nature drags us back into doubt. The deceiver grasps at our heart and tells us that God is not with us. It's our great temptation in these moments to curse God for his, pl- for his plan, to reject him for allowing this to happen to us. But the psalmist wrote in verse 2, in the midst of his pain, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Or in verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his oppression, he turned to praise the Lord. In the midst of doubt, the psalmist still proclaims the Lord as his refuge and his exceeding joy. The author yearns to worship him again with his people in the temple. For him, that meant that he had to go back to Jerusalem, but for us, we are the temple of the Lord. We don't have a building that we must go to. We don't have a a specific place that we must all gather. But we can worship the Lord and praise his name wherever and whenever. When you go on a beautiful hike through the woods and you see the sun gleaming through the trees, you praise his name. When you visit a calming beach and you listen to the crashing of the waves, praise his name. When you take a beautiful back road drive on a Sunday afternoon and the sun is all over the road, praise his name. When you get stuck in traffic and that jerk just whips along the side in that that lane that's going to end, praise his name. When your boss tears you down, even though you are one of the better employees and you know that guy was slacking off in the booth next to you, praise his name. When you are being mocked or bullied or torn down by the people around you, Praise his name. When you receive an awful diagnosis, praise his name. This suffering is not pointless. It is a part of the plan of God for your good and for his glory. So you praise his name. 
Is God only worthy of praise when we are receiving the things that we want? Praising God only when things are good is showing that you don't value God. You value the things that He is giving you so long as they fit with what you want and what you desire. In the midst of his pain, Job, after he lost his family, his houses, his livestock, his wealth, his health, his sons and daughters, all swallowed up by the devil with God's permission, his initial response to the loss of his wealth and property and family was this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I doubt that I could say something so powerful after losing everything in an instant like that. But it, would be certainly, it was certainly God working through Job at that time. Job immediately turned to praise God. But what did Job's wife do? In Job 2.9, she says this, Do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? But Job's response was, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? This is such a strong response in the midst of great grief. Job's tone changed not too long after this when he started to doubt the goodness of God. But the initial response is an example to us. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, even in the midst of great loss. But why should we continue to praise God for our dark times? Doesn't the verse say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet good times, so that you may know that the good things from God will continue to come? No, of course not. That's not what it says. James 1, verses 2 to 4 say this, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. Praising God, being joyful in God, because of the trials of various kinds, because the testing of your faith by God is used to build you into the image of His Son. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10 but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I shall boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." God uses these dark times, the times when it's clear that we could not make it on our own, to work through us and show the world that He is a powerful God that works through His people. When you get a terrible diagnosis of your son and continue to be a faithful family, serving the Lord and serving your church, that is the work of the Holy Spirit through a dark time. When you receive terrible news of the loss of a family and you continue to praise the name of the Lord because you know that that family member was going to be with Him. When the world says that you just lost them, that you lost them forever, you have the hope of God within you that points to Him even though you're in a dark time with your family. This is the work of the Lord through His people. The overwhelming peace that some people have through the most difficult of situations, the joy of the Lord in great times of trial, 
that is the God showing himself in our weakness. Romans 5, 3 through 5, I mentioned it earlier. But not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We praise in the midst of desperation because of the work of God being done in us and through us, even in the most difficult of situations. God is producing good character, and through good character, hope through the sufferings of the world. I don't know about you, but it's almost a hard and fast rule in my life that when I have been at my lowest, when I have been the feeling the furthest from God, God has made himself the most real in my life. When things are going well, I grow, I rely on God, but certainly not as fervently or intensely as when I am in the throes of despair. When I am broken and I only have Christ to cling on to, that is when I really sense my need of Him. When things are easy, it's simple to get distracted and focused on other things and feel like you don't need God quite as much in your life. But when all you have to do, all you have is holding on to Christ, then you really know your depth of need for Him. And that is a purpose of the pain that you face. God showing Himself through our weakness. There are more scriptures that prove this point that we should praise God in the midst of trials, but I think we get the point. He uses the pain and the suffering to help build us into the image of His Son. In the midst of your doubt, in your pain, in your feeling of abandonment, muster up your weary soul and praise His name. Pray, plead, praise, and finally, preach. Look again to the psalm that we're going through, Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist is preaching God's faithfulness to himself in the midst of his despair. He is speaking to the depths of his own being, He commands himself to return to praise, to look ahead to how God will faithfully faithfully bring resolution to the whole ordeal. He is demanding that his his soul would hope in God. Hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. The author commands his soul to hope in God because he would praise him again, the God who is his salvation and the Lord of his life. He is declaring the faithfulness of God to himself, and this should be a regular practice of ours as well. In the midst of our good times as a preparation for the assault of the evil one, and in the bad times as a defense against the doubt and pity and despair, we should, praise the faith, we should preach the faithfulness of God in our doubt. Many great pastors have said that they preach the gospel to themselves daily for similar reasons. But what does it mean to preach the gospel to ourselves? What does it look like? I think Ephesians 2 is a good place to start. I'll give you a moment to turn there while I get a drink.
The first three verses of Ephesians 2 say this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The good news starts with the bad. We deserve punishment because we are these people. Because we were dead in our trespasses. We were not sick. We were not unwell. We were not drowning. But we were dead. We were decidedly evil. We were irretrievably wicked. We were irredeemable by any natural means of man. Why? Because we followed the prince of the power of the air. We were following the untrue king of this world. We sought after evil. We followed wickedness, pride, anger, strife. Look at verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, the desires of our bodies and mind. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were wretched and vile people, simply chasing after the base appetites of our bodies the evil desires of our flesh. Surely, all who live like this are depraved. And the Spirit, sorry, the Scripture is saying it is the whole of mankind, whether as a Christian prior to your salvation or a non-Christian up until the present day, we have all or are all in this group of evil people. We seek after our own desires to the point where even the good that we may do is often based upon a selfish motive. I don't know if you've seen any of these YouTube videos where the guys go out and just hand out a bunch of money to people on the street. They might give like $1,000 or $200 to just random people. But they record the whole thing and put it on YouTube and hope to get a lot of views so they get paid back that money so they can go and do it again and get more views and then continue to get paid more money. How vicious of a selfish cycle is that? It's, a, it's solely self-gratifying to put it on YouTube and say, look at me, world, I am such a generous person with every intent to go and gain it for themselves, right? We do this all the time. When Jesus said that you were, what you were supposed to give and your left hand wouldn't know what your right hand is doing, that's the intensity with which we're supposed to keep private the generosity that we do. We're not supposed to display it and put our name on the big plaque to make sure people know who it came from. I don't know if you know about The Office, but uh, Michael Scott, he, he had one vision where he was going to give a bunch of money to the hospital, and he would put anonymous on it. And that was such a good thing, right? But then he would sit on the park bench across the street, and somebody would ask, oh, man, I wonder who donated that wing of the hospital. And he'd say, Michael Scott, I know because it was me. It's like, wait a minute. I thought the whole point was to be anonymous. I thought it was to do a good thing. But you're just going to glorify yourself through the good that you do. How often do we do this? How often do we pretend that we are good people so that people will like us more, that we can get a good, good name in the group around us? But we are actually contorting what God has given us. We contort the good gifts that God has given into depraved and solely self-gratifying acts. We take marriage, and in our culture, we have this thing called open marriage, 
where you can go and sleep around with whoever you please at whatever time you want, but you're still married to that person because you made some kind of promise before the government, I guess. But it's not anything like what God has given us, where it's man and wife forever, everlasting, in on earth. You are supposed to be together with your one person forever until the Lord calls us home. It turns sex into this action that solely gets each other's rocks off. It's just feeding the necessary appetite that you have to, that you have to get rid of. It's like eating and drinking. You just got to do it, and then once you've done it enough, you can, you'll, you'll be good for a little while. We lie, we cheat, we steal to advance ourselves in our work or in our finances. We dishonor our parents, our families. We all live or have lived these lives, utterly opposed to God and what He has called us to. And we deserve instant, permanent, unending, unyielding punishment for those sins. Every time that we do something wrong, we deserve to be smitten right there, sent to hell for eternity, and punished forever. But, but God, says verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. While we were at our darkest, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, out of the rich benevolence of God, out of His great love for His people, even while we were dead, brought us to new life. He resurrected our hearts. He recreated our broken souls. We were given a clean slate, a pure heart in Christ. He brought us this new life purely out of His grace. Then He placed us with Christ in the heavenly places. It speaks to the assurance of our salvation in Christ. When we believe in Him, we are wrapped up in Christ and in heaven. We are already a part of the kingdom of God, and we can never be removed. We are wrapped up in Christ. Your seat is reserved with Him in heaven, and nothing can change that, even the sins that you may continue to do. How marvelous a mercy that takes the utterly shameful and broken and recreates them into a new life in Christ. But God doesn't stop there with His grace toward us. Look at verses 7 through 10. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not result of work so that no one may boast, but we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why are you set apart as a believer in Christ? So that you, continue, that you can continue to, sh sorry, so that He can continue to show you the innumerable riches of His grace. Solely by grace, you have been brought from death to life. Purely by the work of God, you are redeemed, recreated, reserved a seat in heaven, and made into the resemblance of Christ so that you can continue to walk in the good works which He has prepared for you. That is the gospel that we should preach to ourselves. 
Though we did nothing to deserve it, and we have much to disqualify us from receiving any kind of grace or mercy from God. While we were dead in our sins, He has redeemed us as a believer in Christ so that we can abandon the ways of our flesh and walk in the good works that He has called us to. Now, you may have noticed that this is only a good news to the believer. If you are not a believer, then you still reside in the condemnation of your death and trespass. You are under the punishment of your sin. I urge you to contemplate these things. If, I, if what I'm saying is correct, then you owe God a debt too great to pay. You deserve God's righteous judgment. And the only way that you can be spared from that punishment is by accepting the gift of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. He came and died so that all who believe in Him will have their debt removed. Your ledger is dripping red ink, and the only way to make it into the black is selling your debt to Christ. He offered to purchase your debt. He has paid the price for all who would believe. Simply believe in Him and put your debt. Your debt is paid in His death rather than your own. Lest we think anybody in here uh, lest anybody in here think that they are a good person, let's go through some of the Ten Commandments and make sure that we all know that we are not. This includes the Christians as well, so I'm not just I'm not calling you out, all right? The Ten Commandments are God's list of commands in the Old Testament that it's the ten basic things that we must follow, right? So, have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? This is called blaspheming. All right? If you ever use God's name as a curse word or ever attribute to something to God that He did not do or something evil that you think He must have done, then you are blaspheming the name of the Lord, and according to the Bible, you owe God the debt of sin. If you've ever disrespected your parents because it says, honor your mother and father, then you owe God that debt. If you ever lied, then you owe God that debt. These are simple and basic things, and that's just three of the list. I don't think anybody in here has not done those things at one point in their life. And yet, God gave us the opportunity to be saved in His Son. And there's three things that we must do in order to claim that salvation that He has paid for for ourselves. It's three easy things. A, accept your need for a Savior from the wrongs that you know you commit. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is the Savior for you, that His life and death and resurrection was a payment for your sin. And C, commit. Commit to serving Him with your life as a slave to Christ, as a slave to God. It's, a, our, it's the least we can do as a loving response to His gracious gift of paying for our debt. I pray that any of the unbelievers in this room would hear this message and be challenged to think about this grace of God. But I also hope that the Christian who has been a fake friend of God, a fake slave, would hear this as well. Because this challenge is not just for the unbeliever. It's for the people who pretend that they are close with God and yet are far from Him. If you continue to be a fake slave, or let me tell it this way. If I tell you that I'm going to be your friend, and then I don't, talk, I don't talk to you, I, t- I speak ill about you behind your back, and I never want to be in the same room as you, I'm a fake friend. 
I'm not actually doing what I said I was going to do. So if you, as a believer, have claimed that you are going to follow God with your life and then immediately turn to your sin that he, that he has freed you from, you are not following Him as your Savior. He is not your master. You are choosing to go back to the things that you were doing before. And this isn't just like every time that you sin, you're going back. This is a repeated attitude, of a habit of life where you're returning to your sin. So please, be challenged by this message. Be challenged to preach the gospel to yourself, understanding how broken a sinner you were before Christ has saved your life. I will summarize this message. We'll read the psalm again together, and then we'll, clo- uh, we'll bring the worship team back up for another, song, another worship through song. Psalm 43 presents us with this broken, hurting author. He's feeling oppressed and rejected by man and by God. The author responds through four actions that we ought to replicate in our despair. The first one is prayer. As I said before, this whole passage is essentially a prayer before God. It's all about the conversation from the author's perspective that he's having with God Almighty. He's crying out, um, pleading before the Lord for his salvation. He's crying out in praise, raising God up for the sovereign king that he is. And he's preaching to himself the faithfulness of God through this prayer. The second was pleading. This is the emotional appeal before the Lord. Asking for his hand to be shown in whatever trouble you may be in. The author shows this through verses 1 through through 3 with words like, Vindicate me, deliver me, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill. Praise, worshiping God, proclaiming his goodness, proclaiming his faithfulness, his power, his authority, proclaiming the goodness of God for all that he has done over your life. The author showed this through verses 2 and f- through 5 when he said things like, You are the God in whom I take refuge. Send out your light and your truth. God, my exceeding joy. O God, my God, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And finally, preach. The psalmist preaches to his own soul, recognizing the great faithfulness of God that, has come, that he had done before and he will do again. He had faith and hope that he would return to the temple and praise him again. And we should react to to our despairs and our trials in the same way. And then I made an, an appeal to those of us who may be fake slaves of God, to those of us who have never been a slave to God. Let's take this time to focus on our need for a Savior and do the proper thing, commit to your life to Christ in the response of Him paying for the debt of your sin. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read the psalm aloud together, okay? God, we want to thank you for your word, the truth that you have given us, the guidance for our life that is in your Bible. God, we pray that we would be able to focus on it, learn from it, grow in it, grow in our knowledge of what you have given us. We pray that you would speak through this message, that you would speak to the heart of all of us in here, in the ways that we can turn to you in our despair, in the ways that we can turn to you for our, for our salvation, as a reminder of the gospel that you have given us through this, your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use this message and speak to your people in this room. Amen. Let's stand and read Psalm 43.
Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God.'" 